Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are reading our way through the Aubrey Matry novels of one of our favourite authors, Patrick O'Brien. Mike, it's a big week this week. We've got a lot to, to cover in the last chapter of this novel. Remind us what we had covered so far. Give us a little hint of what's coming this week. Oh, I'd be delighted to. Thanks, Ian. Well, last week, Stephen survived a bout with yellow fever. Jack continued to worry whether his squadron, with all its problems, could defeat the French if they catch them in time. They found that the great slave market was empty, kind of ending their mission there, headed back to Freetown with Stephen's new Pato, where Stephen was very taken with Christine Woods. Yeah, I suspect, Mike, she with him as well, right? It sure sounded that way. You're right. Now, when they got to Freetown, they learned that the French squadron might be early and reinforced with another 74-gun ship, and they left in a hurry to intercept the 74. Now, this time, Jack continues to worry about the odds if they don't catch that 74 first. We find that, as always, no plan survives contact with the enemy or Mother Nature, And we arrive at Ireland at last with heavy weather, biblical references, everyone in need of a pilot, and a multitude of surprises. Wow, Mike. It's funny. It sounds like it ought to be a big chapter. There's so much for us to to take care of here. But, well, not, not to put too fine a point on it, this is a fairly short chapter. So let's get into it. Let's see what we can discover. First of all, the chapter opens with one of these great visual moments, this tableau in my imagination of sea and the Bologna, the ship, and who's that at the main top gallant cross trees? It's Commodore Jack Aubrey, 140 feet above the sea. And O'Brien paints this really wonderful picture for us of him. He paints a picture of how their rigging and the upper spars are frail support for a man of all the umpteen stone of Jack Aubrey. He talks us through the pitch and the roll, how the glass is dropping, how Jack is impervious to all of this. He doesn't notice the the curves and the swooping motion and the howling winds. He feels as natural and at home as he would be on the landing of the stairs of Ashgrove Cottage. And Jack looks out across the 50 miles of ocean that the squadron commands with the Bellona there in the centre. And he sees how the father ship's are about to move in towards the centre of the squadron because sunset is coming and also because the weather's going to turn dirty. And that gives us a great chance, Mike, to catch up with where we are on the journey back up the Atlantic for this squadron here. Yeah, they've had, had done their usual cracking on and, and you know, in Jack fashion, they've arrived eight days before the French squadron is scheduled to meet the César. And they're patrolling around this rendezvous point, which, is, as you say, it it's kind of due west of northern Portugal. Tom Horn, as always, has it beautifully spotted on cannonade.net. And in all this patrolling time, sort of back and forth across this rendezvous point, they've only seen one ship, a Bristol merchantman, who has seen no other ships. But Jack worries they still could have missed the 74 going through in the night. And he's thinking, you know, if we don't intercept the 74, and if the French Commodore can, you know, handle all his ships really well, they're going to be heavily outnumbered and may face disgrace when they meet the larger French squadron. Now, Mike, I I don't remember Jack raising this 
when he first talked about this with Stephen. I don't remember it being a possibility that actually this this might be a a bit more than Aubrey's squadron themselves can chew. But here we are. It does sound like there's some jeopardy for us right here at the end of the novel. And Stephen hears Jack talking with Tom Pullings, covers up his code book. And now we get this little insight that Stephen has still been puzzling over this coded letter from Sir Joseph Blaine. He thinks there's a mistake in the encoding there. He's made no progress, but he's even more convinced than he was before that one of the groups refers to Diana. And stick a pin in the mention of Diana. I, I'm pretty sure at this point, Mike, that I'm expecting if, if it were to be decoded that there's going to be some sad news or some bad news for Stephen about Diana. Still, uh, no, no progress in the decoding activities for Stephen. He wipes the anxiety off his face, however, before Jack comes in. And Stephen looks up and says, a great line. To a tormented mind, he says, there is nothing more irritating than comfort. Apart from anything else, it often implies superior wisdom in the comforter. But I am very sorry for your trouble, my dear. Thank you, Stephen, comes back Jack. Had you told me that there was always tomorrow, I think I should have thrust your calendar down your throat. And it's, it's a really nice backhanded way of introducing where they have got to in this search for the French fleet because they've been backwards and forwards on this stretch of water now for a while and Jack is growing in his conviction that he's missed his moment. He's convinced that the 74 must have slipped through by night and therefore the squadron is going to face great odds when they find the French, the 74 and the original squadron all reunited. He knows that this is not unexpected in the service. He's thinking here of the experience of Sir Robert Calder with 15 of the line meeting the combined French and Spanish fleet of 20 of the line off Finisterre. Now, Mike, we know from our conversations uh, with Paul Briers talking about the uh, the book Fog of Water Falga that actually the Battle of Cape Finisterre was strictly speaking a success. But that didn't mean happy times for Robert Calder, the commander, right? No, it really didn't. You know, Calder was a Scotsman. He was commissioned lieutenant in 1762. He became wealthy for life as part of the capture of a Spanish treasure ship. Makes post in 1780, becomes captain of the fleet in the Battle of St. Vincent. In 1797, he's knighted, gets a baronetcy the following year. Rear Admiral, 1799. Vice Admiral, 1804. And you would think this guy's kind of set up, but no, as you say... In 1805, as squadron commander under Nelson, he's attempting to keep Villeneuve's Franco-Spanish fleet from joining ships blockading Brest. And on July 22nd, 1805, in a heavy fog, he intercepts the fleet. And you know they fight this confused partial action where he takes two Spanish ships of the line and he has the opportunity to bring Villeneuve to battle again over the next couple of days. But he believes that his orders are to keep his squadron intact and to prevent the enemy fleets from uniting yeah. by maneuver rather than battle. You know, he doesn't want to risk it, lose his thing, and then these fleets unite. Nelson was sympathetic to his comrade's dilemma, but at his court-martial, and this is what Jack's remembering in 1805, a few weeks after Nelson had crushed Villeneuve at Trafalgar, Calder is severely reprimanded for a failure to use his utmost endeavors to defeat the enemy and never served at sea again. 
Wow. <laughs> it's tough, right? It, it It's tough achieving both rational success on the battlefield and pleasing your political superiors. Calder wasn't the only one whose reputation took a hit at Finisterre. Bonaparte had, had this to say about the difference between the Spanish Admiral Gravina uh, and the French Admiral Villeneuve. Gravina, he said, is all genius and decision in combat. If Villeneuve had had those qualities, the Battle of Finisterre would have been a complete victory. And of course, Villeneuve went on to lose the Battle of Trafalgar a few months later. And when I was at the uh, the Navy Museum in Madrid a few weeks ago, there was a lot of p- p- proud and honorific stuff on the walls relating to Admiral Gravina. So he's clearly held in high regard. Villeneuve by the Spanish, not so much. Right. <laughs> well, Jack also is remembering Nelson's battle. You know, Nelson had 974s. One of them had run aground. And at the Battle of the Nile, he took on 14 ships, you know, 120-gun ship, 380s, 1074s. Nelson attacked them all at once, burnt, took or destroyed all but two. So winning against greater odds is not unheard of mm. and is often expected. You know, and Jack's even thinking back to, you know, his 14-gun Sophie, you know, defeating the 32-gun Spanish frigate. But... O'Brien reminds us that Nelson knew his captains, he knew his ships, he knew the enemy. Yeah. And and Jack remembers that, you know, Nelson had told him, never mind maneuvers, always go at them. But Jack's thinking, well, wait a minute, back then the enemy was undisciplined, inexperienced. They'd been shut up in port for years. And Jack thinks Nelson would have never advised the captain of the Java to go straight at the USS Constitution. When you're fighting somebody who really knows how to fight, it's different. And in the present situation, Jack, unlike Nelson, only knows two of the captains in addition to Tom in his squadron. Mm -hmm. He doesn't doubt Duff's personal courage, but he doesn't know how far discipline has declined on the stately. And if Thomas and the Thames fought, their lack of sense and experience guaranteed that they wouldn't fight intelligently. And he's thinking, you know, even with all the gunnery exercises, he doesn't think the Thames gunners would be shy, but they might, like others before them, in the, uh, in, as the text says, get rid of very tyrannical officers accidentally done a purpose. So little, all kinds of concerns here. Yeah, and the, the, the stakes are considerable, right? It reminds me a little bit of, was it Corbett uh, in the Mauritius Command? who was also at risk of being done in by right. the officers that he had this kind of tyrannical sway over. Anyhow, despite Nelson's situational advice, in the engagement that's coming up here, Jack is pretty sure that maneuvers will make a difference, and he keeps trying to come up with a plan which doesn't depend on discipline aboard the stately or seamanship aboard the Thames. And he concludes his thinking and says to Stephen, I do not think there is any more futile occupation than talking about what should be done in a battle at sea until you know the direction and force of the wind, the numbers on both sides, their relative positions, the state of the sea, and whether it will take place by day or... By God, Stephen, I could swear I smelt toasted cheese. We have not had toasted cheese before our music this last age and more. And uh, I, I love that moment. Jack Aubrey can be caught out even in pontificating about naval tactics, one of his favourite subjects, with just the suggestion of a whiff of an even hypothetical portion of toasted cheese. 
but it turns out he's not mistaken. The toasted cheese is not hypothetical. Killick had managed to wangle some cheddar from the Bristol merchant that they had encountered via the purser. So well done, Killick. Toasted cheese for all. Nice, nice. Well, as they're eating their cheese, Stephen asks Jack about these concerns about, you know, an upcoming battle. And he points out that the Thames is only a frigate. And and as Stephen understands it, when the ships of the lines are engaged, the frigates stand by at a distance. They carry messages, repeat signals, pick up survivors, and harass enemy frigates if they attempt to escape. But they do not join in the fray. And Jack says, well, yeah, that's true of fleet actions. You know, ships of the line don't fire upon frigates unless they're fired upon but we, you know, he tells Stephen, are not a fleet and our two ships of the line don't form a line of battle. He said, again, everything depends on wind, weather, light, darkness, how the sea is running. But he says, when small squadrons meet, there may be a melee in which frigates and even sloops are involved. It's funny, isn't it? O'Brien has to remind us of this because we've had so little of actual line of battle you know fleet fleet actions not much of that kind of action took place really altogether in the napoleonic wars anyway but we've been in the world the kind of cochrane-esque world of jack aubrey and frigates and small ships so he's kind of reminding us that there is this whole other perspective and this whole other way of doing battle when you're at fleet scale but anyway we go from the grand scale of a fleet action down to the small scale of jack's parsimonious habits when it comes to his violin playing supplies he asks Stephen to pass the rosin so he can rosin up his bow. Stephen wonders sarcastically why it is that a man of Jack's wealth and standing, that is to say an MP, high up on the captain's list, well in with the courtiers at court, why that person cannot or rather will not afford himself a piece of rosin. And uh, Jack's straight back at Stephen here. He says, well, I have a boy to educate, daughters to provide dowries for, half boots, Tippets. A tippet is a long fur scarf or a shawl. And when Stephen starts to worry about Bridget's fortune and tippets, he may economize on Rosin too. So there you go. What, what it is to be the father of daughters, eh, Mike? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, between their toasted cheese, their port, their minds, O'Brien tells us extremely worn by anxiety, both Stephen and Jack sleep extremely well. Jack's awakened by a youngster reporting the laurel signal that the enemy has been spotted in the dirty north-northwest. Jack has the laurel signal to Ringle to approach under American colors, find out the enemy's numbers and rates, and then leave steering southeast. He's trying to kind of keep, you know, keep their eye away from Jack's squadron and report back in one hour. Now, Jack, you know, as he always does, sends everybody to breakfast. And it's the noise of that shrilling pipe and everyone rushing to breakfast that wakes Stephen up. And because, it, you know, the text says Stephen's no more peculiar about washing, brushing, and shaving than, you know, they say the, the monks of the Theobald, meaning an Egyptian hermit monk, he arrives at the table before Jack and Tom arrive back in the cabins. <laughs> Stephen just rolls out of bed. <laughs> Rolls straight to the table and beats Jack and Tom back for breakfast. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So Stephen asks Tom if the enemy is really upon them, as many of the crew are saying. And Jack says, well, they're within 30 miles. Tom reassures the doctor he should not be worried. He says, the Commodore has a plan that will confound their politics. 
another little quote of the national anthem there. Right. Jack assumes that the French Commodore is searching for the missing 74 and will not come to action if he can avoid it since he's encumbered with transports and that the wind, which is currently favourable for the French, will shift by nightfall or later. If these assumptions are true, then they'll stay east of the French and they'll have the Ringle configured to look like a small American privateer, keep them in sight and report to the Laurel. And then when the French get to their rendezvous point, find no 74-gun ship, they'll turn around and steer for Ireland. This sounds like a great plan. Aubrey's got this all figured out here. The wind will have changed. And when they're north of them, Jack's squadron will have the weather gauge and can then bring them to action whether they like it or not. Jack points out, I'm, I'm sure with a lot of grasping of blaying pins here, that this is the ideal course of events and could be thrown off by a thousand things, such as the wind not changing or the wind dropping or a busy privateer coming along and seeing Jack's squadron or the arrival itself of the 74 or a storm. Mike, these, these are all the kinds of things that have come along in action sequences before in Patrick O'Brien books, so we all nod along here. Jack says his predictions may have a very strong touch of old Moore about them. And I, I love this old Moore thing. I can remember uh, in, in my childhood, every Christmas time, you could buy copies of old Moore's Almanac. Like it's, it's still available today. I'm going to dip into the 2023 predictions for old Moore and see how they do. Um, Francis Moore in the 17th century was an astrologer and writer who every year would make prophecies published as old Moore's Almanac. And, on presumably the same basis um, it publishes today. So let me tell you some of the things that uh, Old Moore might have predicted for 2023. Old Moore this year predicts an Atlantic event that will affect the coast of the west coast of Ireland. Don't know what kind of event. House prices will slow, but will still go up. No sign of that yet here in the UK. An asteroid will be too close for comfort. Easy prediction. It happened. Uh, there will be a severe health warning for former U.S. President Donald Trump. Mm, not just his health. Um, the internet will suffer a, gro- a global outage. Well, that happens every Friday in my house. Um, <laughs> Harry and Meghan Markle will face marriage and money problems, and there will be a change in the Pope. Remember where you heard it first. I'm not paying royalties to Old Moore. You can have these for free. So, <laughs> Mike, Jack is not playing it, the Old Moore. He's saying he doesn't know whether his predictions are going to come true or not right right well a midshipman reports laurel signal two ships of the line probably 74s two frigates in company a frigate or corvette a league ahead and four transports too far astern so we've heard back from the ringle the laurels repeated the signal and tom says you know he'll he'll be up on deck presently and he tells Stephen he doesn't think there's anything of old more in the commodore's predictions he believes, in his words, we have them. And Jack cuts him off, say, hush, hush. There's many a slip twixt the cup and the sip, you know. Uh, you know, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Tom agrees and immediately touches a wooden bread bar. So, yeah, yeah, Jack is like, wait, wait, wait. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here, folks. We don't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to tempt fate. Well, I, I love the suspicion and what, what I think O'Brien would call the old naval piety, but it turns out that Jack's forecasts were sound. The French were indeed delayed by the wind and had decided to wait at the rendezvous until a lucky day and time. So not sticking around on the 13th, but wait until the 14th at half past 11. And in a thick, dirty night, followed by a wind that bowled them along fast, the French very nearly run clear. 
the Ringle and the Laurel had headed out to where the French were supposed to be in three days. But in six days, with ocean drift and dirty weather and human error, that point had lost its meaning. And the Ringle comes back to the Bellona, saying that the French had been seen hull down in the northeast, steering northeast yesterday, one half hour after sunset. So there we are in mid-Atlantic. The French fleet are steering, steering northeast, Mike, they're headed for Ireland. And it's all on for Jack Aubrey and the squadron here. Yeah, yeah. Jack, you know, Jack's up there again. You know, he's way up looking out across and, he, and he's preparing the squadron to press on. He's ordering preventer backstays and braces and shrouds. You know, all the things he needs to bear the foul weather canvas that the people are now rapidly spreading here. And all this urgent driving of the ships prevents Jack from slipping into bitter self-reproach. He's thinking, you know, he came so close to failure because of his overconfidence in his own judgment. He even spends a day aboard the Thames, showing them how to ring an extra knot, maybe even two or three fathoms out of her. But with his best effort, he's still slow. Um, and, and he realizes that she really needs to be stowed at least a foot and a half by the stern. But the emperor always keeps her stowed. So in the words of the text, her masks were bolt upright, perpendicular for pretty. Mm. And, you know, Jack's done his best. He returns back to his ship. And <laughs> right afterwards, the Thames carries away her foretop gallant mask in her zeal, <laughs> trying to trying to listen to Jack and, and, and move faster. Well, we, we've heard this before, right? Jack Aubrey knows that more haste, less speed. Put piling on sail doesn't always help you to move faster. Right. Anyhow, on the second day of this chase, Jack is watching these French sails from the masthead before he heads for dinner in the wardroom. And we get a, a little history lesson, a little backwards look at something that we've already heard spoken about in the canon. The wardroom are discussing Horsha's disastrous attempt on Bantry Bay in Ireland, with an enormous unmanageable fleet in 1796. The ironbound coast, the frightful seas, a southwest gale, rocks, and a tide race, all of which might have been better discussed when the dropping glass here aboard the Bilona wasn't pointing ominously towards uh, a blow coming soon that would blow even harder. And uh, th- this is a little reference. I think we've both looked around for evidence of uh, a real-world French attempted landing in the west of Ireland in the kind of 1810s. Doesn't seem like there is one. But there certainly was this attempted landing by Osh. He had risen from being a royal stable lad in the old regime to a leading French military officer in the Napoleonic times. And as a general, he commanded an army of 20,000 that was put into troop ships and headed for Bantry Bay in 1796. But winter storms there prevented him from landing and the plan was abandoned. A 74-gun ship named after him, Dosh, was taken by the Royal Navy in the abortive 1798 invasion of Ireland and the Battle of Tory Island that we heard about with Paddy Cullivan all those uh, weeks and months ago. So after dinner, Jack takes Stephen, wrapped up for the weather in a tarpaulin jacket, up to view the enemy. The sweeping seas make the view from the deck imperfect so he calls for bondon to help stephen up into the foretop stephen says i i can take care of this myself but remember this is stephen who is a bit of a lubber and also still i think convalescing from yellow fever so jack insists that stephen should be safe and yet keep his self-respect intact so off they go up there with bondon's help they see topsails sometimes courses and even an occasional hull 
as these boats kind of rise above the level of the horizon on the seas. Stephen reports that he can see two two two-deckers, what he calls a little small thing far ahead, four of what he believes to be troop carriers and two frigates. And Jack compliments the French Commodore on how well everyone is keeping their station, which I'm sure is a worry for Jack right now, thinking again about the Thames and the Stately here. And Jack is using his distance glass to figure out whether the range is changing or not. He sets the telescope, separating the two halves of this divided lens, and hands it to Stephen and says, if they touch, then we're gaining. And if the two images separate, the chase is going faster. After a long pause, including Stephen pointing out a stormy petrol, the images overlap. So Mike, this long stern chase is one where the British squadron's closing after all. They are, they are. And and Jack thinks that they're actually gaining quite fast. And he decides, you know what, I'm just going to leave the Thames to make her own way because Jack wants to catch the French by mid-morning with the stately right there with him within sight of the coast. He thinks, you know, that the French Commodore will heave to and fight there since he'll be able to put his troops ashore under one or both of the frigates. And Stephen asks, you know, if their fleet's frigates might just destroy the French frigates. And Jack says, nah, our frigates would be badly outgunned in weight of metal. The French have, a, a, first of all, a 36 and a 32 gun ship, and they have 18 pounders, while the Thames only has 12 pounders and the Aurora only nine. So, you know, that 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 doesn't look like that's going to happen. No, it's a tough calculation of the weight of metal there. Well, Jack's still thinking about gunnery, and he's thinking that he might want to engage the French as soon as possible. So he calls down to the master gunner to be sure of the ring bolts. And I, I, I can remember Jack Aubrey taking care of ring bolts and planking way back in the opening of Master and Commander when he was taking over the Sophie. And it's at the front of his mind again now. He says, I want to be sure of the ring bolts. And the gunner answers with a pun of his own. He says, if they draw, sir, you may draw me too and quarter me into the bargain drawing mean disemboweling right right so this all sounds okay the gunner's pretty confident of his work jack checks to see whether stephen knows bantry bay or the kenmare river these are the points that the french seem to be headed for or if he knows any of the other deep inlets that are along the way and stephen says well i hardly know them from a landlubber's point of view so i'm not going to be much use as a guide or pilot but still jack is pretty contented with things as they are. So, Mike, with the French fleet in the thick weather headed northeast, inshore towards Ireland, and Jack Aubrey's squadron bringing up the rear with no local advice from Stephen, I think this is a pretty good moment for us to take a pause, maybe go and grab a glass of something for the Irish, and join us when we come right back after this break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. All right. I hope you had a, a, a nice, refreshing pause. Grab your tarpaulins and we're, uh, you know, we're back into this. So Jack wasn't worried as long as things stand the way they are. But of course, they don't stand the way they are. <laughs> the wind strengthens. It veers westward and they can only carry close reef topsails, which still carry them kind of at a breakneck pace. 
The clouds cover the skies. There are frequent heavy squalls. There's no possibility for an observation. And they have little reliance on dead reckoning. So, you know, they're kind of, it's nighttime. They're not really sure where they are. They're moving fast. Jack and Stephen are playing music and playing cards all during the night with Jack going on deck often and roaming the darkness. Uh, At one point, he senses the changing forces of the air and the sea, and he comes back to tell Stephen that the wind's almost due west, only to find Stephen asleep in an elbow chair. And Jack does the same for what he you know, he thinks is just a moment before he hears the cry breakers on the starboard bow. Jack reaches the deck before a messenger even reaches him. He sends up two blue flares, the agreed upon signal. And as daylight breaks, they see the shores, the islands, a narrow rocky sided bay and a rounded island close in on the northern side. The two French 74s are on this side of the island and watching them Jack is convinced that the French, too, are uncertain of their landfall. They're flying a green flag, but there's no signals or pilots to be seen anywhere. Hmm. So, the, and I, I was kind of plotting this in my head as I first read it. The, the French forces are divided. We don't really find out what, why that is the case, but the French 74s are kind of nearby and they're separated from all the transport. This sounds like a golden opportunity for a marauding commander like Jack Aubrey. So we're getting in close here. Jack stops the ship's bells. He stops the morning ceremonies. He clearly doesn't want any sound to carry to break the French out of their reverie and make them realize that there's, a, there's an attacking fleet coming. Miller, who's the officer of the watch, points out that in the first island beyond the northern arm of the bay, what now proves to be a small group of islands in there, in a cove, there are the troop ships and both frigates concealed from view. Now, Jack realises if the French Commodore should take his squadron into that narrow northeast bay, he would never get them out in this wind, and he's not sure of where he is. So the French Commodore is keeping his forces back out of the bay a little bit before we can determine whether he's at the right place before he goes all the way in and finds himself embayed by the weather. Now, Jack's last Irish pilot had died in the Bight of Benin, so he's kind of on his own here. He beats the ship to quarters. The stately is within a cable's length. The Thames, sailing badly as always, has sagged away to the east, almost beyond the other horn closing the bay, almost out of reach, probably not able to form a reinforcing group here with the Bologna and the Stately. The Ringle, meanwhile, is 50 yards on the Bologna's quarter. She's right there to be a tender. And Jack greets William Reed on the Ringle, signals for the Thames to rejoin and for the 64-gun Stately to come within hail. Yeah, fingers crossed for that. Jack calls over to Captain Duff, saying they'll attack the French two-deckers directly after they've eaten whilst bearing down on them. He says that he, Jack, will tackle a pennant ship while the stately and the Thames should look after the other 74. Duff is right up for this. He's very happy to be engaged. Says, very happy, sir. Her crew give three cheers as the ship's part company again. Jack orders the Aurora, the Camille and the Laurel, the small ships, to maintain a discreet watch on the transports and their escorting frigates over there in between the islands. And Jack hopes that maybe he can pull off a coup here. Maybe he can snap them all up with no damages or casualties, if they're successful against the ships of the line here in the bay. After a quick meal as the ships bear down on the French, who who by now have moved towards what seems to be kind of a cloudy village on the south side, Jack is 
back on deck addressing the crew. You know, he tells them they're going to attack the pennant ship while the stately deals with her companion. And Jack intends to engage them so close that their round shot will go through both her sides to end it quickly. And he says, and be damned to him who first cries, hold enough. The crew's very hearty cheer echoes also from the stately. But the Thames, though no great way off, doesn't answer the cheer. And Jack turns around through his glass and sees that she's in trouble, appears to be inshore of a reef and can't turn or advance. So as you say, Ian, looks like the the Thames is of no help here. Yeah, so it's all going to be on the Bellona and the Stately. So battle is joined. The French fire a ranging shot and then fire another shot that comes home. And within minutes, they're yardarm to yardarm. So here we are, we've got broadside to broadside action at long last right 10 chapters in the broadsides emerging together in a continuous roar and as the ships ground together the french try to board but they're repelled by the bellonas there's a triumphant cheer as the enemy's mizzen goes by the board at deck level taking the main topmast with it she runs northeast along the shore firing from her undamaged side but 11 minutes after the first shot she runs aground onto the rocky shelf just below the village. And again, th- this might seem to be quite a common fate for ships that are going to fall victim to Jack Aubrey. And I don't know if that's just a, a, a Jack Aubrey style thing, but that often, yeah, it, it often seems to be the case that the uh, undersea rocks reach out to grab ships right. in time for Jack Aubrey to take uh, to take them. Jack calls on her to surrender, and she does. She can't bring a single gun to bear, and even if she could, the angle at which she lay meant that she had no hope. The surf isn't quite as dreadful as it looks, so there's an opportunity there for boats to bring the French Commodore and his officers across and to carry a prize crew back. Stephen Maturin goes across, since their surgeon, who had wished to see a battle and was therefore on deck at the time, had been killed. And Mike, there's there's a little echo here of something that we've seen before, right? Yeah, I, I had this little spooky feeling about, wait, wait a minute, dead French surgeon at the end of the Master and Commander Far Side of the World movie, remember, but the captain was pretending to be the surgeon to make her get away. I know it's, you know, maybe not here, but I thought, ah, oh, that, that sounds a little familiar. <laughs> well, Jack watches the stately try to draw ahead and tack across the other Frenchman's bow. You know, he's going to rake her fore and aft. But his ship or his men's skill betray them, and she does not come about. As she's hung there in the irons, the Frenchman pounds her, knocking away her main and mizzen topmast. And when she finally falls off to her former tack, the enemy bears up and rakes her. And if the Bologna hadn't approached, the stately would have been destroyed or taken. But as the Bologna approaches, the Frenchman races close hauled to the end of the southern headland, and out to sea with, you know, kind of seems no care for his friends in the secluded cove. Right. So now all of a sudden the battle's back in the balance here. The reason for her flight soon appears. Around the headland come two English 74s and a frigate appearing around the Northern Cape. Jack, but by the way, again, Mike, I was kind of scrolling through my memory of where Jack stands in the hierarchy at this point, thinking, is he going to have another Admiral Bertie type situation where right. some other cove takes charge and tells him what to do? No, the ships here are all commanded by officers junior to Jack in rank and therefore uh, obliged to take his orders. Jack signals them to heave to. He tells Tom to go look to the stately, which is clearly had some heavy action there, and drops onto the deck of the Ringle. The Royal Oak, one of these ships that are around in the headland, receives the shabby 
bloodstained and indeed bloody person with all the compliments due to his broad pennant and with very great enthusiasm. It's nice, isn't it? But the, yeah. the, the little warm gush of feeling that we get for Jack when he's getting recognition from the Navy for what he's done here. Jack says he's bringing them prizes, but he points out that over there is the, the cove where the transports and the two frigates are. He says he would take them himself, but he has four feet of water in the hold, gaining fast from the fight with the French pennant ship. So he's slow and he's heavy. They treat Jack really well aboard the Royal Oak. They give him joy of his victory and offer tea and cocoa and perhaps gin and hot water or the whiskey of these parts. And and Mike, I'm irritated on Jack Aubrey's behalf that nobody mentions coffee at this point. (laughs) That's right. Anyhow, they're delighted. They've been sent from Beerhaven on rumours of gunfire. They approach the cove and Jack's frigate captains come aboard, passionate for news and grieved for the Bellona, who's clearly heavily damaged here, wallowing along, the pumps are flinging water over the side. One of the French frigates cuts her cables, squeezes through an improbable gap, and runs east before the gale with everything she can set, joining the ship of the line returning to France. The rest of the French submit to overwhelming force as Bellona joins the company. And Mike, from a naval point of view now, this action is done, right? Well, you know, you, you would sure think so, right? Jack asked Reed on the Ringle to let the doctor, and, and the doctor, as we recall, is, is back over there on the captured French pennant ship, know that the Bologna and the Stately are going to be taken into Bantry to be patched up. And Jack says he hopes to make the ride a short way across land to see Stephen in a day or two. And he also wants Stephen to know how the news reached Bantry that they were there, you know, how they got this assistant. It was a boy on an ass who had ridden across land, as the text says, to tell them it was the French at last. Well, from the Irish point of view, this sounds like redemption, right? That the Irish had been looking for this long-promised liberation by the French, or at least a large part of the Irish community had. And now here was a French ship filled with people, and most importantly, with arms that they can use in an uprising against the British. The tide had gone a long way out, and this ship had settled, her timbers groaning and breaking. So now there's a little bit of urgency. If you're a potential Irish renegade, time is running out to get aboard this ship and help yourself to some of the supplies that are on there. Some of the French had helped the prize crew and helped Stephen to transfer the wounded to the local hospital. So there's there's clearly going to be some fellow feeling for Stephen helping the wounded ashore but also some interest in what can be made of the weapons that the French ship's carrying here. Some of the village men had been in Irish regiments of the French army before the revolution and knew their language. And they'd learned the purpose of the French expedition and the nature of the ship's cargo, these weapons that are aboard, and word has spread. And it looks like this could spin out of control. Stephen and Father Boyle return from the hospital to this noisy, threatening crowd. There's a small guard of the Marines from the Bellona on the almost dry landward side of the stranded ship. A young officer says to Stephen that they're worried the crowd might try to rush them. And now here's a a great moment for Stephen, the Irish patriot, and Stephen, the intelligence agent, Stephen, the political savant here, to do his thing. He climbs halfway up the ladder and talks to the crowd in Irish. He says he knows they want weapons, and says they'll have them too. If you had those weapons, 
weapons from the man who has kept the Holy Father close prisoner and who turned Turk in Cairo, worshipping Muhammad, they would be your bane and your certain death, God between us and evil. Do you not know, he says to the crowd, do you not know the whole barony is raised with the news of their coming, the French? The yeomanry of all West Cork and County Kerry are afoot, and every man found with a musket from this ship must hang. A full gibbet by nightfall, and never a roof with its thatch unburnt. I, I, I love this moment for Stephen. I also love the way O'Brien has really f- filled this speech with every little Maturin-esque little bit of Irish usage just to really pile it on that Stephen is speaking to the Irish like the Irish in Irish, and he's as, he's as Irish as Stephen has ever been up to this point. Now, it's not all about the Irish language, right? No, no. As he's doing this, he turns to the priest and in Latin says, death in the pot, O oh man of God, death in the pot, and urges the priest to tell the people to be quiet, he says, or there'll be widows by the score tomorrow. Turning back to the people, again, back in Irish, he tells them uh, uh, the story of the prophet Elijah, or Elysius, as, as O'Brien writes it, <laughs> Elisha, this, this side of the pond, and says that Father Boyle will confirm this, that the prophet and his disciples were offered a meal in the desert, but somebody cried out, do not touch it, O man of God, there is poison in the pot. And he concludes, countrymen, that accursed ship would be the deadly pot for you, so it would were you to touch it, God forbid. And then Stephen turns and walks into the prize, leaving the townspeople silent. And you know, I, I was I was kind of scratching my head for a minute, going, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is this is clearly, you know, it's 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 a reference from the Old Testament. Here comes from Second Kings chapter four, verses thirty-eight through forty-one, and, and it's an unusual miracle story, especially for the prophet Elisha. It's surrounded by miracles that we know really well because they're miracles that are very much like the ones that Jesus did, you know, raising a son from the dead, feeding hundred men with 20 loaves of bread in the midst of a famine. But in the poison pot story, the prophet Elijah simply sprinkles some flour into the poison pot and it's miraculously okay for everybody to eat. But you know, the way Stephen uses it, it's a really good way to make his point. And like the Pato's field, it's in the Bible. Oh, very good. <laughs> Well, everyone, the biblical scholar today, even Stephen Maturin, late that night, just as Stephen said, and also throughout the next morning, the area is filled with yeomanry. As he had suggested, the military will come down on these people like a ton of bricks. There are soldiers and yeomanry, and they're, they're ready to whip and imprison and burn down the houses of anyone who's found in possession of these weapons. They're frustrated. Thanks to the early intervention of Stephen Maturin, all they find is a little bit of the illicit spirit that is locally drunk, and then they leave. At mass the next day, Stephen is treated with all the respect of the Lord Lieutenant and much more affection by the townspeople, who invite him all to honour the house with, uh, with stepping indoors and uh, taking a tin of whiskey. Uh, there are presents left for him at the ship, and Mike, all of a sudden, Stephen Maturin is a local celebrity. It, it, it's almost like you know, we're trying to make it very, very clear to everybody in the local community just who it is that's arrived. Right, right. Well, 
with all his critical surgeries done and his patients well cared for by the, the local medical personnel, Stephen goes out for a walk and he's greeted by a country gentleman that he hasn't seen in years who's, who's come to see this French ship. You know, a lot of people are coming from around the countryside. And the man invites Stephen into a Shabin, a little small kind of illicit bar, usually, you know, somebody selling liquor out of their private house. You know, he invites him in for a drink, saying that he's sure Stephen is on his way to see Diana. He'd just been out fox hunting with her recently. <gasps> dum, dum, dum. Wait, I, I was blindsided by this. <laughs> one of the big plot questions, one the, by the way, which also opens up a bunch of others. One of the big questions has just been, oh yeah, Diana, she's here. And she's been fox hunting. And it, I, I look back a few pages and I can see that we were getting the hint in the, the coded signal there from Sir Joseph Blaine. But I remember the first time I read this, I was not ready for this. How, how about you? Mm, absolutely not. It's like, what? What do you mean? You know, she's right here. Are you kidding me? And, okay, well, well, we just had this big thing with Stephen and Christina, and now we're going to have Stephen and Diana back together again? I don't know. I don't know. Well, uh, Stephen, in what seems to be a sort of outward display of some composure here, thanks him, goes inside for a drink, takes his pulse to measure the emotional response here, telling the man that he's been studying emotions lately and he wants to give them a number since their quality can't really be measured. His number, as he measures his pulse, is 117 to the minute. And Stephen is very excited. <laughs> the man replies with a little bit of mathematical insight, 117 is the luckiest number in the world, a prime number to be divided or multiplied by no other. Stephen says he's right and asks him if he'll run him into Bantry so that he, Stephen, can hire a horse or a chase. The man says, I'll do better than that. Bantry's in the wrong direction. I'll take you directly into Drimmerleague. League is apparently, uh, in the real world, a small village in West Cork. And we, we learn a little bit more in the conversation with this this Irish gentleman here. Yeah, so Stephen is, is kind of dumbfounded. He, he has nothing to say as he rides along. But Stanislas, this this gentleman, you know, says speaks enough for both of them. He describes in great detail his day with the hounds, fox hunting with Diana and her little Arab gelding, asking Stephen, aren't you amazed? And Stephen, who's just kind of starting to get a grasp on the situation, and realizing that in a few moments, as the text says, he might see his heart's desire, whatever the consequences, answers, I think, quite honestly, deeply amazed. Yeah. And it's like like magic. Stephen has single-handedly turned around this potential uprising in Ireland, and his reward for it is to find that Diana is sitting here in the same village. And in any other author, I'd be going, no, come on, you're pulling our legs here. But this is Patrick O'Brien. He's been very gently buying this moment all the way through the book here. So we get a little bit of catch up with what's been going on with Diana. She's been staying with Colonel Villiers, who's an ancient relative of her first husband. And as they pull up to the gate, Stanislas lays another bombshell on us. As a king's officer, he says, Stephen should put on half mourning. He had gone to Bantry earlier that morning looking at the Stately and the Bellona and had seen the Stately's flag flying at half-mast. And he made the logical assumption and said, well, surely that must mean that the captain had been killed and how, how is Captain Duff? No, Captain Duff is still very much alive. He'd lost a leg in this very severe action. The flag instead 
was for the death of a royal. Drum roll, Mike. Who's the royal whose death is announced by the half-mast flag here? Lo and behold, it's the Duke, the Duke of Habakstall, who'd cut his throat in London last Thursday. The news had just come over. What? Again, again like blindsided by this. But in addition to the Diana thing, thank heavens that O'Brien put a little reminder last chapter to, to bring us back to remembering who he is and what his role is. I'm sitting here thinking, hang on a second, is, is this everything put to right now? Uh, Stephen and Padine and Jack, at least from a career point of view, uh, Clarissa, Bridget, they're all going to be okay now. That's what I'm thinking. But fortunately, Stephen has the answer for us in the next paragraph here. Yeah, O'Brien tells us that you know this adds yet another amazement for Stephen. He can now get pardons for Clarissa and Padine. Stephen's fortune will be safe anywhere. He can even give Diana a gold crown if she'd like one. Uh, you know, he tells Stanislaus that he hasn't seen Diana for thousands of miles and, and would now like to go in alone. And Stanislaus understands. He says, you know, Diana will be amazed. And uh, you know, Stephen says, "God bless you." They bid each other goodbye. Oh, wow. Now, Stephen, as described to us by O'Brien here, seems to be taking it for granted that it's all going to be okay. Can give Diana a golden crown if she'd like one suggests that he would like to do that for her. Right. But I'm still not sure about this until we have this beautiful encounter with them meeting again. Stephen walks up to the house. No, no staircases here, fortunately. Uh, walks up to the house, looking at the beautiful grounds that have fallen in some places into disrepair. The front door opens at the top of the main steps and he hears Diana's voice say, Are you the bread? Stephen says, I am not. She emerged from the darkness, shading her eyes, cried, Stephen, my love, is it you? Flew down the steps, missed the last and plunged into his arms, tears running fast. They sat there, pressed close. And she said, You have the wildest way of suddenly appearing when my mind is filled with your name and even your image. Which is a little bit of a twist in the gut, maybe for Stephen, because we, we know that his mind has also been filled with the image of Christine Woods. But anyway, here we are, Mike, Stephen and Diana reunited. It is. It is. You know, she worries that he's so yellow and thin, wonders if they've been feeding him, if he's been ill she says, you know, he must be on leave and he must stay there with her, that the colonel will be back shortly. He'll fatten Stephen up on all manner of seafood. And then the text says, Lord, I'm so happy to see you, my dear. Come now and rest. It is destroyed you are looking. Come up to my bed. Must I come to your bed? Of course you must come to my bed and you are never to leave it again. Stephen, you must never go to sea anymore. The end. Wow. Wow. I love how Diana sneaks in a little bit of Irish usage as well there. Right. Oh, man. But what a chapter. Lots of the action, you might say, almost all of the action of the book. Lots of resolution. You might say all of the book's plot questions turned over in three paragraphs there. So many things figured out. Not what we've been used to recently, right? We, we, we've had really slow development of story arcs and really slow evolution of the action. But this was all in a tumble at the end of the book here. 
It, it really is. And, and, you know, O'Brien just seems throughout this to be so much at the top of his game. You know, we have all his usual, the human condition, life at sea, domestic life, intelligence work, intrigue, naval action. Are maturing heroes still human, yeah. just as good and just as real as they ever were? And what a difference between this ending and the end of the Wine Dark Sea. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of things, of course, here that that, that we've seen before. O'Brien undercutting what looks like a good trend in the story with all these different complications. He sometimes has whisked the action away from us, like, yeah, yeah, we took the treasure ships and yeah, all the prize money belongs to the crown. Right. But th- so, so we don't know now whether any of our questions are going to be answered immediately. Like we, we've got the reconciliation of Jack and Sophie. We've got uh, Stephen and Diana. We've got Bridget and Clarissa and Padine. Is that going to happen in the next book? Are we going to skip past it and we're all going to presume about it? Or are we going to have to wait another two books? And now that O'Brien seems to be back up at full steam, I'm really interested and wondering as we turn to the uh, to the Yellow Admiral. But let's let's just keep talking about this book for a minute here. I noticed, Mike, what Diana said at the very close. She said, "You must never go to sea again." And yet, the last thing that we heard Bridget say in this book was, "I shall never go ashore." So I, I, I'm sure that's not an accident. I, I, I think there's a big question now about what's going to happen with Stephen and Diana. Well, I, I think you're so right. Ian. I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, okay, so here's Diana, Stephen, you know, you must never leave me again, but where's, where's her daughter? And, and as you say, these two, Bridget and Diana, almost like polar opposites and polar uh, wishes for here. You know, I, I love seeing Stephen and Diana back together again. And I just, you know, it just, oh, I love this. It just, you know, absolutely warmed my heart. But Jack and Stephen never going to see together again. Mm-mm. No way. No way. And, and I, you know, I remember I was so happy when, you know, Diana and Stephen reunited in Sweden. But I remember that didn't last. So I'm, I'm a little bit once bitten, twice shy. Um and, and it's hard to imagine, as you say, that O'Brien's just going to let this all go gently forward. I mean, you know, we know we have three more books. He was writing the fourth when he passed. So certainly there are more stories here. And I'm getting a little bit more concerned about complications. Although I do want to just take this moment and rest in the joy of Stephen and Diana in each other's arms at the foot of the stairs in this joyous reunion here. Oh, Mike, it's great. So are, are we going to get... T- turn the page and whisk to the island, or are we going to get catapulted ahead? How are these relationships going to work out? How is the story going to be told in these last few books? Mike, before we get into more Patrick O'Brien, it's it's worth us saying that next week, we're going to enjoy a really great interview that we recently had with two new friends of the podcast. Ian, I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. You know, we we talked to Will and as, as his young sailing adventures abide the roads that would become our dear, dear surprise in the movie Master and Commander and her captain, Richard. So, you know, next week, right, we're going to have that interview. Yeah, we are. We're going to hear stories of weather and intrigue and movie making and a little romance and different cultures clashing at sea when we hear from Will Sofferin about the book All Hands on Deck. So we think you're going to love that interview. That's going to be our episode for next week. Um, Mike, as soon as we're done with that, I suppose it might be time to look back again 
at the O'Brien bookshelf. What, what do you say to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? I would like that of all things. said at the Battle of Copenhagen with his telescope to his bad eye. Outtakes? I see no outtakes. <laughs>